Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency is settling a religious discrimination lawsuit with one of its job applicants. The applicant, a Sabbath-observant Jewish man, says NGA only gave him Saturday options to complete pre-employment screening steps. NGA is settling the case after the Supreme Court issued its ruling last year in a similar case of religious accommodation in the federal workplace. For more on this case, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And Jory, if you would just review the facts here. Yeah, sure. Real briefly here, NGA last month, they reached a settlement in the case of Jeffrey Padel, this Sabbath observant Jewish man who applied for several NGA police officer jobs back in April of 2021. So a couple of years for him to get this kind of relief. But what he was looking for, he has a background in law enforcement. He's had jobs in this field before. He applied to all of these jobs. He got a response back from the agency several months later, and they were willing to take him on and go through this pre-employment screening process. It would involve a written test. It would involve a physical test. This is law enforcement after all. And it would be an interview before a panel of people who would go through all the candidates, ask them questions and kick the tire, so to speak, to understand whether they'd be a good fit for the agency. And the first option that he got as far as a date to schedule this was a Saturday in the summer. And he told the agency his situation. He says, no, I'm sorry. Saturday's the Sabbath for me. I can't do this. Can you give me a non-Saturday option? And the agency went back and they said, well, we'll get back to HR. We'll see what we can do. According to the lawsuit, that never happened. He never heard back from what HR said about this. And he was told time and again that Saturdays were the only options he could do this testing. Got it. I guess I'm surprised NGA has its own police force in the first place. But that aside, what happened? What did Padel do then after this never came through? Well, initially he went through the EEO process, the Equal Employment Opportunity Office at NGA, and he explained what happened. And they were starting to interview, according to the lawsuit, some of the people who were sending these emails to Padel in the first place. And one thing that came to light is that one NGA official who was managing this email address, he was familiar with the religious accommodation process for NGA employees, but he wasn't sure whether the same level of protection applied for job applicants, people who were not yet employees at the agency. And other officials interviewed by the EEO office, they conceded that if they had hired Padel for this law enforcement job, that there wasn't going to be any real necessary need for him to work Saturdays, that he could easily work a Monday through Friday shift and other people do. So that was not going to be an issue for him. Just to be clear, when he asked for a non-Saturday screening interview, they didn't say, we can't give you anything but Saturday. They just never answered him at all. Eventually, they did say that for these types of positions, for these NGA police positions, the only days available for them to do that pre-employment screening were Saturdays, and okay. they never offered a non-Saturday option. Got it. All right. So what happened when the court got the case? What did the court do there? Well, this bounced around at a couple of courts. This uh, initially appeared in a district court in Pennsylvania where Mr. Padel lives, and then it wound its way to the Eastern District of Virginia, where uh, one of the judges hearing this case uh, was pretty struck by the whole situation uh, and, and seemed it was a pretty open and shut case for Padel. The judge here in this case, he was saying that it was not clear to him why NGA and its parent agency, the Defense Department, uh, couldn't have simply just done this on a Thursday or a Wednesday. And 
He said, ultimately, how many Orthodox Jews are applying for these kinds of positions and that this is not imposing on NGA to make this kind of religious accommodation request. It seems like a pretty easy thing from the judge's perspective that NGA could have done. So from the judge's perspective, they made it pretty clear that he was sympathetic to, to Patel's arguments in this case. And so eventually NGA did reach this settlement with him. Yeah, they smelled the coffee, so to speak, coming off of the judge's bench there. And what did the NGA actually agree to as part of the settlement? Well, as part of the settlement, they did give Padel an opportunity to take this test on a day that is not Saturday. We heard from uh, his attorney, Cliff Readers, that he took it earlier this month. He took it on February the 6th. Again, this is multiple years after he initially applied for this job. Um, but NGA more broadly made this decision to clarify – well, it agreed to, as part of its settlement, it agreed to clarify that these religious accommodation, things that it's able to provide, it applies equally to NGA employees as well as applicants. And so they've made that clear on their website and they've uh, issued memos stating as much to all aspects of the agency. Yeah, and so to, for further information on this, I and for a little bit more on this, I did hear from – Fidel's attorney, Cliff Readers, and he says that his client did get some cash settlement as part of this as well, uh, but he said it was really important that the other information and the other language about accommodations in the workplace be part of the settlement. In the security business, in military business generally in the United States, have not been very conducive to Jewish people, specifically Jewish people who are observant. It's been difficult for Jews in the military. It's been difficult for Jews um, applying for military, paramilitary, and security kinds of agencies. They do not traditionally, they are not traditionally welcoming to observant members of the observant Jewish community. And so hopefully this will change that environment substantially. And again, that's Cliff Readers, the attorney for the applicant here at NGA. And, Jory, the uh, Supreme Court did have a similar case, as we said at the top last summer. Did that impact this particular case? Interesting overlap in this case. In the case of Groff v. DeJoy, this was the case of an evangelical mail carrier, Gerald Groff, did not want to work Sundays because that was the Sabbath that he observed. And as USPS started to deliver more and more Amazon packages on Sunday, that began to become a conflict. The Supreme Court, of course, doesn't deal in the particulars of cases. They deal in matters of law and the Constitution. And so in his, in his case, the Supreme Court set a higher bar for religious accommodation for all employers, government and non-government. And actually, a appeals court is still weighing in on the particulars of Groff and whether the Postal Service in this case uh, you know, had an undue burden trying to meet this shift request from Groff. But the overlap here is that Hadell and his attorney, they filed an amicus brief on behalf of Groff, saying that this was a similar type of situation that they were both dealing with. And I did ask readers whether this ruling the Supreme Court gave Hadell extra ammunition in terms of this case. But he says really not that ultimately, in the case of Padel, this was a more open and shut case for him. He was going to work for the United States of America, where there are thousands 
and thousands of thousands upon thousands of people who could have provided him a reasonable accommodation. There was no attempt made to find Mr. Podell a reasonable accommodation, in spite of the fact that the employer would be the United States of America, the Department of Defense, which would be in a very good position to afford a reasonable accommodation. Well, then, this is all settled, but is it? That is to say, is Jeff Podell working for NGA in law enforcement now? Well, that's not yet clear. We He did take the initial pre-employment testing. Um, it remains to be seen whether he'll actually get the job or not. One thing that I should mention as part of the settlement is that Padel does get access to that interview panel's notes. The Defense Department and NGA have guaranteed that the members of that interview panel have no knowledge of this case or the settlement. So it remains to be seen whether he'll get the job, but uh, that's or uh, that's something we'll see in the future. All right, and I know you'll be on top of it. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture, because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's gotta be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.